So it's official. Uh, the coronavirus is a pandemic. Um, interestingly, there are no confirmed cases in Portsmouth yet. I, I checked this last night. Um, I am convinced. I'm not a medic. I'm convinced that it's because we're an island, don't you think? And now, what I say, I reckon we should pull up the drawbridge, don't you think? Let's keep it like this. Uh, joking aside, though, and to state the obvious, the situation is serious, and it's scary. I'm pretty sure I haven't had a conversation that's lasted longer than five minutes in the past week that hasn't touched on coronavirus at some points. We're worried. And I was thinking, well, why is it that we're so concerned? Well, obviously, we're worried that people that we know will be affected. But I think also we fear the insecurity, don't we? We have no idea whether or when I'll get infected, and we know that there's not really much that we can do about it. To be honest, we're, we're fairly powerless when it comes down to it. We feel vulnerable. We long, don't we, for a world where viruses do not exist, and where we can enjoy safety and security. Well, the chapters in Isaiah that we've just read describe a world just like that. Uh, they describe what it's like to, to follow God, and, and I think we're going to see that being one, one of God's people is, is brighter and richer and more joyful and exciting than we could ever imagine. And crucially, we're, we're going to see that we are completely safe in God's secure love. Not necessarily safe from the virus, of course I can't promise that, but safe eternally, guaranteed to be part of a perfect world and surrounded by God's perfect love. On Sunday mornings here at Cornerstone, uh, we've been traveling through the second half of the book of Isaiah since January. Uh, we took a break for the last couple of weeks to cover some other topics, uh, but we're back now. And if we're to understand today's chapters, then we need to understand something of the story that's gone before them. Um, so we're going to have a really quick summary, if that's all right, of the story so far, so that this section makes sense. You might have noticed uh, some of the language in the reading pointing back to past tragedy. It points back to past tragedy. The message is to God's people, and, and they're called a, a barren woman. Did you see that? That's a woman who, who can't have children. And, and changing the metaphor, it talks about the, the shame of your youth. It says there are a, a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. And it's, it's pretty strong language, isn't it? it it's evoking... I think, traumatic memories for God's people. And I'm aware that the, the use of a metaphor of, of a woman who can't have children will be painful for some, um, either personally uh, or for people they know. Can I say clearly at the start, God is not saying here that people who can't have any kids are any way worse or anything like that. It's not saying that. But I think we're meant to feel the pain of the woman in this chapter. That we're meant to, to feel these traumatic memories. And in the metaphor, these images, they're referring back to God's people's past. See, God is described elsewhere as Israel's husbands. Um, and he was the perfect husband. He loved them. He loved his people. He provided for them. But time and time again, they would turn away from him. Uh, they left him to worship many other gods. They were unfaithful to him, adulterous over and over and over again. And eventually, God had had enough of this. And so in chapter 50 of Isaiah, he gives them a certificate of divorce. The marriage is over. Israel were under God's judgment, not his love. His anger, not his care. 
So, so you can imagine this woman, can't you, in the picture, finally rejected by her loving husband. And the metaphor, this picture of this woman, is, is a sad sight, mourning over what might have been. The family they might have had. In her case, the love that she spurned. But then after all that, we get to some good news in Isaiah chapter 53. And God shows how his servant puts all that right. His servant mends the situation. He repairs the broken relationship. And we'll see the details in a few weeks' time. But for now, it's enough to say that God's servant suffers for his people. Chapter 53, verse 5, for example. But the servant was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. See, God, by this suffering servant, has cleared the way for the relationship to be mended. He's paid the price himself so that the marriage might be restored, so that he can be reunited with his people, even though he actually was the one who was wronged. And here's what we see in today's passage. In today's passage, we see the result of that reunion. Today we see what it was that God's servants achieved for God's people. We see the blessings that he brought them, the relationship that he repaired for them. Everything we see in Isaiah chapters 54 and 55 today is what God won for his people in chapter 53. What we see is what it's like to be one of God's people, reunited to him by his suffering servants, Jesus. We're going to cover uh, the two chapters under two points. I think it divides it quite neatly. And the first is this. The first is that the Lord gives joy, security, and righteousness. The Lord gives joy, security, and righteousness. And this is from chapter 54. Chapter 54, it gives us uh, two pictures to describe these blessings of being reunited with God. And the first picture we've begun to think about already is the family. And as we look into more detail into this picture, can I say, well, let's allow ourselves to be excited by these blessings that they describe. And listen to the joy of verses 1 to 3. So from verse 1, Sing, barren woman, ye who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, ye who are never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen the cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. You can almost imagine, can't you, her joy as she's reunited with her loving husband. And she plans for the children that she's always longed for. She's got the extension plan and she's told, well, don't hold back. Make your dreams bigger and bigger. Stretch them out in that direction and in that direction. Keep going, keep going a bit further. There is abundance and joy here, isn't there? And plenty. A few weeks ago, uh, Sarah and I bought a tent. Uh, We're planning to go camping in a few months. And um, to be honest, when I bought it, I got a bit carried away, um, classically. Um, See, I wanted the awning out the front. Uh, I wanted the gas-powered fridge. I wanted the rug in the doorway. Um, the two-ring gas burner so that we could cook proper meals. Now, Sarah, at this point, she, she wisely suggested, maybe we see how it goes the first time round. You see, see, we actually haven't been camping together before, and there's a fair chance that I will hate camping. Let's just get the tent for now. We just got the tent. Well, actually, we did get an awning, I should say. We did get the awning out the front, but nothing else. But that's not what it's like in verses 1 to 3, is it? 
In verses 1 to 3, there is no holding back. So get the awning, get the fridge, hang it, get the biggest tent you can find and invite everyone along. There is abundance and there is joyful singing. And, and the newly, newly reunited woman, she, she's also secure. Now look at verse 4. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. Why? Because you will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhoods. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. She can forget the shame of past failures. They are dealt with by the servants. They no longer come between her and her husband. They've gone. Forgotten. Besides, the Lord, the God of all the earth, he is her husband's. Family life is restored, and it's joyful and secure, despite her former sin and adultery. Listen to how tenderly the Lord speaks of her. Verse 7, For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you. Isn't that warm? Isn't it tender and loving and remarkably forgiving? Deep compassion. Everlasting kindness. It is not that his, his anger before was some mistaken fit of anger. No, it was completely fair and, and it was measured. But now there is love and compassion. In the picture, the wife has a secure, permanent love of her husband. In reality... God's people have the secure, permanent love of their gods. A love even more secure and solid than mountains. Look at verse 10. Because of the suffering servants of chapter 53, because of Jesus, God's people know his secure love. The family is restored. Let's move on to the second picture, the city. We'll see in, uh, in verse 11 it says this. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted. And now the picture is of God's people as a city now. God speaks to the city, God's people remember, and he starts by reminding them of their former situation. That they were like a city smashed by the waves and the wind and the rain. The picture is like the storms a few weeks ago, isn't it? The power of the waves on the seafront was amazing. It was immense, smashing into the beach. That's what it was like for God's people under his judgments, like being buffeted by waves over and over without rest. But look at the contrast. Verse 11 again. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. What a contrast that is. Going from being smashed by the storms to stones of turquoise, foundations of lapis lazuli, which is like a, a deep kind of purpley blue stone. And there's towers of ruby, there's gates of sparkling jewels, uh, there's walls of precious stones. Now, the, the picture might be a bit glitzy for your taste, but we get the idea, don't we? We get the idea. It's beautiful, it's amazing, and it's secure. Stone, foundations, battlements, gates, walls. 
And you can imagine this, this gleaming city and no longer worried about the storms that used to destroy it, but instead glistening in beauty, strong and secure with, it, with its high walls, its strong gates and its immovable foundations. And why is it so beautiful and secure? Well, look at verse 14. Verse 14, in righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. And then look at the end of verse 17 as well. End of verse 17. This is a heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me. And by the way, as an aside, the word kind of translated vindication, and that really is the same as righteousness too. So underpinning the city's security and beauty is its righteousness. That means the fact that there is no longer any wrongdoing between them and God. The relationship is restored. Their sin is forgiven. They are righteous. And again, all of this is from the suffering servant of chapter 53. This suffering servant in chapter 53, well, it's it's a picture of Jesus. It's Jesus who gives this righteousness to God's people. He wins it for his people. He brings that security and beauty by making us right with God, by removing any wrongdoing between us and God. He pays the highest price to give us this righteousness and and to give us this beautiful and secure relationship with God. He, by his death, makes us right with God and gives us this joy, this singing, this security, uh, the richness and the excitement that knowing God brings. The servant makes us right with God and gives us this peace, this richness and this secure love. Imagine for a minute a husband loving to gaze at his wife going about her day. He can't help but but feel the love towards her and protect her and show her compassion and kindness. That is how God's people, God feels about his people in Christ. That's how God feels about you if you trust Jesus. And so we can enjoy this excitement, this security, this love and this righteousness in him. Some people might say that knowing God is grey or cold or boring or bland. Not one bit. It is exciting and fulfilling and colourful. Except, if you're a Christian here this morning, you're probably thinking something like this. Sometimes, yes, but not always, actually. And not completely, not all the time. And to be honest, I, I agree. We get glimpses of this, don't we? We get these glimpses of these, this feeling of warmth and security of knowing God. But sometimes, if you're like me, we, we do feel cold towards God. We feel distant. We, we feel like his love for us is, is not secure. Like, like he might up and leave if we continue to sin as we do. We sometimes, if we're honest, feel, feel flat. And dare I say, even bored knowing him. But in the New Testament, uh, Revelation chapter 21, it talks of a time when Jesus will one day return and he'll bring the new creation. And that chapter is remarkable how much language it picks up from from Isaiah 54. Uh, Listen to these verses from Revelation chapter 21. It's really interesting how similar the language is. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God's. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. 
on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then later on it says, The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. And then it goes to list some of those. See, that is the time when Isaiah 54 happens in full. It's when Jesus returns and he brings about the new creation that his people fully experience these wonderful blessings. Now we experience them in parts. Then we will experience them fully. We are made righteous now, but it's only then that we will fully see and feel the wonderful blessings that that righteousness brings. And don't we long for the day when we will have only excitement for the future and no shame about the past. This is what it's like to know God. There's warmth, richness, fullness, abundance, excitement and security. Please don't think that knowing God is boring or grey. And his people experience that partially now, but fully when Jesus returns. So, so I guess if we've understood this chapter rightly and let it get under our skin, then we should be aching to have these blessings, shouldn't we? To, to know God in this way, to, to live life to the full. So the natural question then is, well, how do I get this? What do I do? We're on to our second point now. So come to him. The Lord gives joy, security, and righteousness, so come to him. Chapter 55, which is where we're looking now, is full of instructions. We're not left wondering what we're meant to do, are we? Here's a summary. We're told to go to the Lord, admitting our wrongdoing, changing our ways, and listening to him. And what he gives those who do that is wonderful. We saw that a bit in chapter 54, and we see even more in 55, in case we missed it. And I think the center to the whole of chapter 55 is in verses 6 and 7. This is key. It's right at the heart of the chapter. The whole chapter kind of hangs on these two verses, on on verses 6 and 7. Let me read them. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. And on first hearing, maybe this, this sounds rather negative, doesn't it? But, let, but it's actually a remarkable pro- promise. The second half of verse 7 again. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Israel needed mercy. They needed pardon because of the way that they had treated God. They had been unfaithful to him by worshipping other gods. And I know that I, for one, am guilty of exactly that too. So we need a pardon. We need mercy. We need forgiveness. And that is exactly what's promised. He will have mercy on them. He will freely pardon. So so there's a promise, but it is time limited. Did you see that? Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Let's get practical for a minute. Please don't assume that you you can put this off um, for going to God for this pardon until you're older. Uh, Please don't wait until you're on your deathbed or something like that. Uh, There's many reasons why that would be a bad idea, but but not least because you're missing out on the privilege of knowing God until then. Seek him while he may be found. He won't wait around forever. 
There's a change, isn't there, in living uh, that's involved in coming to God. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Verse 1 puts coming to God like this. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Come to God without a cost. He will freely pardon. Now it might be, well maybe we need some persuading that that's a good idea. And that's what Isaiah does next in this section. So after verses 6 and 7, he gives us a load of reasons to turn to the, to the Lord in repentance in case we need persuading. And then the start of, of verses, most of the verses from 8 to 13, they actually start with the word for or kind of because. And that's lost a little bit in this translation, but, but these are the reasons to turn to the Lord. He says, turn to the Lord in repentance, and then gives us some reasons for doing that. And one reason is verses 8 to 9. Verses 8 to 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, the way God does things is so much higher, so much better, so much nobler than the way we do things. It's not just that he's more powerful, although of course he is infinitely more powerful than us, but it's also that he's more good, he's more right, he's more loving, more wise. Isaiah paints this picture and he says, well, how much higher are the stars than the earth? How much higher are they than the earth? Yeah, that's how much holier God is than you. I actually looked up how close the nearest star, apart from the sun, is uh, to us. In a second, you might wish I hadn't, but um, the the answer is it's 25 trillion miles, I think. Um, I think I've read the number right. There there are a lot of zeros. Um, Don't tell my head of department I'm a math teacher. There are lots of zeros after there. Um, but, But frankly... I don't know, does it make much difference to our understanding if I told you actually it's 250 trillion miles? Oh, 250, not just 25 trillion miles. It's the sort of number, isn't it, that's it's so big that, that I, can't, I can't really wrap my head around it getting 10 times bigger. I, it's a big number, and I can't imagine it being 10 times bigger. And in a sense, that's Isaiah's point. What is the gap between us and God? Well, without repentance, without God's free offer of mercy... It might as well be infinite. There is a cosmic-sized chasm between us and God. So that's one reason to turn back to him, the gap between us and God. Only his offer of forgiveness can bridge that. We cannot bridge that gap ourselves. Here's another reason to turn to the Lord in repentance. Verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. In other words, his promise of forgiveness, it is completely reliable. God's word does not return back to him without accomplishing what he wanted it to accomplish. Um, At risk of of dredging up uh, haunting memories of the water cycle in geography, when rain and snow, when they come down from the sky, do you remember, they don't kind of bend back up and go back up to the clouds again, do they? That's not what happens without reaching the ground first. Remember back to those floods a few weeks ago. Um, Do you remember people were, they were waiting in in trepidation, weren't they? 
um, as even more rain was expected on that saturated grounds and those already full rivers. Well, did you notice no one reassured them by saying, well, maybe the rain will just kind of come down, but then it might curve back up again and not actually rain, land on the grounds. No one said that because it's stupid. Obviously, that doesn't happen. No, rain that falls lands on the earth and it makes it wet, right? Well, in the same way, God's words that go out always have the effect that he intended. His promise will not fail. And that fits in, I think, with why the people were encouraged to listen to him in verse 2. So in verse 2, it said, Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will be delighted in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. His promise will not fail. God's word is powerful and always achieves his goal. Now, that is, that is true of God's words generally, generally when he says that. So even when he spoke in creation, what he said happens. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Or in Mark's gospel, we see Jesus got up, rebuked the winds, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. It's true generally that God's words always have the effect that he intended. But why does Isaiah include that here, I wonder? Why does he include that here? It's because here he's especially talking, I think, about God's promise of pardon. Verse 6, let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. That promise is true and reliable. It will not return to God empty. One last reason to turn to the Lord in repentance. Because look at what it brings. Verse 12, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. You can see here, there's, there's overflowing praise bursting out of people whose, whose hearts have been swelled with joy. There, there's color here, there, there's life. Even the fields themselves can't help but praise God. The verses describe uh, creation itself restored as the curse of sin is dealt with once for all time. So instead of thorns and thickets growing ugly and sprawling and prickly, we've got these magnificent lush trees, berries and the flowers growing alongside them. Or as verse 1 puts it, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. But as we, as we look around us at the world, I think we know, don't we, that we're not there yet. We still have thorns. Even my tiny garden still has weeds. And we definitely don't always feel that joy and that praise. In the midst of a coronavirus pandemic, it's hard to argue that the world is all lush trees and pretty flowers. We long for a secure and safe world, but we know it's not what we've got right now. Once again, the last chapters of Revelation pick up this language uh, from Isaiah 55. So Isaiah 55 says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Now, describing again that time when Jesus comes back in the new creation, Revelation 22:17 says this. Don't, don't worry about turning now. I'll, I'll just read it to you. It says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. It's remarkable how similar those, that language is, isn't it? 
All of this happens fully and finally when he returns as described in Revelation 22. We still wait for this world to come, don't we? Now we have a little taste of it. Then we will enjoy the full meal. This is what the servants of chapter 53 brings. This is what Christ brings. It's reconciliation between the husbands and the wife, between God and his people. It's the secure love of the Lord Almighty. Let me read that bit from verse 1 again. Chapter 55, verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without costs. Why spend money without uh, why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. It is a banquet, a feast, freely given at no cost whatsoever to the guests. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. But it is a feast that is, a feast that is not free to the hosts. It's not free to the giver. The servant of chapter 53, where he lays down his very life to reconcile the husband and the wife. Jesus lays down his very life to reconcile God's people to God. Even the cost of his own life was not too high for the feast that God offers his people. At great cost to Christ and to the Father, we can enjoy God's rich banquets. We can enjoy the love and the warmth and the security of knowing God. See, God could have asked that we become like him, maybe, before that we enjoy this. That's what we had to do before we could enjoy this blessing. But of course, we'd never have made it, would we? He could have asked maybe that we kind of make up somehow for our rejection of him. But we could never have afforded the price. Instead, we just go back to him. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. We just accept the invitation, and we go and eat. So as we finish, can I say, go to him. Go to him admitting your wrongdoing, turning away from your sin, and trusting in him for pardon because of Christ's death. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Go to him whether that's for the first time today or for the thousandth time. It's by going to our Lord, by listening to him, by trusting his promise for pardon that we find this richness, this beauty, and this joy. Now we enjoy it in part. When Jesus returns, we will enjoy it in full. This is what the suffering servant wins, and it's what our Father freely gives. Let's pray to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your servants. We thank you for your son Jesus dying to reconcile people to you. And Lord, we thank you for the wonderful blessings that we enjoy as a result, for righteousness, for your love, for security, for warmth. Father, we, we admit that we have done wrong. We too have turned away from you and served other gods. Lord, we ask for your pardon, for that free pardon which you promise us. Father, please keep us going back to you in repentance. Please, time and time again, keep us going to you, depending on your pardon alone. And Lord, please keep us looking forward to the time when we would enjoy these blessings fully. Amen.